For decades, Armenia and Azerbaijan have fought over the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Although Nagorno-Karabakh is geographically located inside of Azerbaijan, it is ethnically Armenian and largely governs itself. The territory was the subject of a war last year between its two neighbors, Armenia and Azerbaijan, which killed thousands of soldiers, saw heavy bombing in the territory's capital city, and resulted in an agreement where Armenia had to return land it had seized in 1994. Today we'll speak with an expert named Alessia Vartanyan, who serves as Crisis Group Senior Analyst for the South Caucasus region. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alessia. Um, I'm curious, just to begin, could you tell us a little bit about how you came into this field, how you became interested in South Caucasus region and your role at Crisis Group? Well, I started uh, being a journalist. Uh, so I was a journalist uh, for almost a decade, uh, covering the war in Georgia in 2008. And after that, I kind of started getting deeper into the situation in the conflict zones, really. And uh, then I just kind of realized that probably it could be good to not just to do uh, a daily reporting with some occasional interesting documentaries and feature stories, but also to look into these um, uh, problems and issues uh, in more detail, kind of uh, finding a deeper context and even kind of an ambition of changing things. And uh, I went to London, I did my master's, and uh, when I was back, I was uh, uh, offered uh, the job with a crisis group. Um, and I'm currently responsible for work on Abkhazia, Sawasadia, which are two breakaway regions in Georgia, and also Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, which is kind of uh, with region contested uh, by Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's now been about four months since the ceasefire of November 10th, when Armenia and Azerbaijan stopped fighting. Today, what's the situation on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh? Uh, on the one hand, we have a situation when we have the Russian peacekeepers. Uh, so these are the, guy, the guys who are responsible for observing the ceasefire, although they also have the guns, but for their self-protection. Uh, but on the other hand, we also have a situation when we line that uh, that separate Armenian and Azerbaijani forces, uh, it, it, it not only became more complex, but it also got closer to the civilian areas. And that changes a lot, in fact. Um, so on the one hand, um, you can observe the immediate consequences of the war with um, people still trying to find um, some of the soldiers who got killed during the war and they are missing, um, or you know, almost every weekend uh, in Armenia and also in Nagorno-Karabakh, people attend funerals um, and uh, they are trying to repair their houses. Some people, a significant number of people became displaced. So these are kind of immediate consequences of the war. But also on, there are some longer term uh, issues uh, in place. So what basically, you know, what this new front line would look like. On the both side, they're building trenches and uh, kind of one questions, you know, what, what will be the future uh, of, of this conflict zone and for both, uh, on, on both sides. And on the other hand, you know, there, there are some uh, bigger regional uh, political processes. So um, the most kind of uh, significant one probably it, is, it comes for, with the Russian initiative to somehow reconnect uh, up, um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. These are two countries that uh, went to war right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, all the trade, all the communication, everything was happening really 30 years ago. 
and Russia has now an ambition of somehow connecting these two countries, you know, so that they start kind of cooperating on different things, which is an extremely ambitious task, I would say. So, yeah, I mean, there are so many things uh, that are taking place and not, not to mention, of course, the political consequences for Armenia itself, you know, all this political turbulence uh, that has been in place in Armenia since uh, the end of the war. Yeah, I understand there's a lot of moving pieces. I'm curious, since a lot of Armenians were displaced uh, in the war last fall, uh, like what progress has there been on resettling uh, people who were displaced either in Armenia or in Karabakh itself? Most of the people returned to Nagorno-Karabakh. And to be very honest, uh, for many people, um, you know, who are kind of uh, observers, but who are not from the region, it's a big surprise, you know, still because um, it was a very brutal war. And now... Um, with uh, Azerbaijani forces, they are stationed very close to the civilian areas and one would imagine people leaving rather than going back. Um, but in fact, uh, the majority um, from Nagorno-Karabakh itself and also from the areas uh, uh, that are currently controlled by the Azerbaijani forces, they are back to the region. Um, according to some kind of, you know, some of the estimates, um, there are around 30,000 people who are still stationed in Armenia, but the, the main, one of the main reasons why they are staying here and not going to Nagorno-Karabakh is just the lack of housing on the ground. Um, just the, the, you know, this is probably kind of the biggest, <laughs> the biggest problem uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh itself is that people are looking for a place to live. And because of that, they have some of them, you know, they start living in basements, in attics, in shops and places like this. So it's a um, it's real kind of challenge. Um, and uh, there, are, there are thousands of people who still uh, who need uh, a new housing. So this is a problem that will probably continue for, for a number of years. Yeah, it's a major problem. And then back during the initial Nagorno-Karabakh war, a lot of Azerbaijanis were displaced from the land surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh. How how much have they been able to return to the areas that they were forced from? Are they are they returning in large numbers now? Um, as far as I understand, no one has returned yet, and this is probably going to be a longer process. Um, the, the destruction on the territory that are currently controlled by the Azerbaijani side that, that are part of the conflict zone, they are mainly mainly destroyed. You know, you need to start building things from scratch, um, and uh, that will take a lot of time. Uh, so. That's uh, something that the Azerbaijani government will have to handle. And I will say that this is probably going to stay um, a longer term challenge and not just uh, from the perspective of, uh, of money, uh, but also from the logistics and also um, smart policies that can help people to settle in the new places. I guess in terms of um, the, the Russian peacekeeper presence that you mentioned, I'm curious how this actually works on the ground um, between uh, Nagorno-Karabakh forces and Azerbaijan army, like how has the ceasefire been held so far? Uh, which is something that is still evolving. So, you know, this kind of thing. So, because uh, um, one can observe them still building trenches on both sides and uh, uh, there is some sort of, uh, you know, communication taking place through the Russian peacekeepers, either um, just kind of, you know, one of the sides telling the Russian peacekeepers something and then the Russians, they are <laughs> transmitting that message to the other side. Or, or there are some also some, some meetings and uh, no one is hiding this, that the Armenian and Azerbaijani side, they're also cooperating on the issue of missing people. So basically, you know, they're still um, 
looking for the remains of the soldiers who got killed uh, during Quiz War soldiers and also some civilians. Um, and this is something that where the Armenian and Azerbaijani side, they, they have to cooperate. Um, and uh, yeah, the Russians are present, they are, um, they are patrolling, they are not really patrolling, but they are stationed at their observation points and uh, there is a communication taking place between their observation points. So if one, for example, takes a car, um, inside Nagorno-Karabakh or through the Lachin corridor, uh, the Russian peacekeepers just kind of trying to make sure that uh, they, the number of people they saw in the beginning, you know, reaches the point, <laughs> something like that. But uh, in, I should say also um, that um, uh, the mandate of the Russian peacekeeper is still um, in making. Um, so they, they were deployed uh, to the conflict zone Right after the right after like um, hours after the ceasefire statement, um, and there are like three four sentences in in that statement about uh, the Russian peacekeeping mission on the ground, but uh, more than that, uh, there is no document yet, and uh, um, I hope that uh, it will be still coming. You know, just because that can uh, provide not just more clarity on the uh, on what the Russians are doing, but also what are their rights and responsibilities. One more uh, follow up on that topic. There's been a lot of reports, including in Human Rights Watch about Azerbaijan holding Armenian POWs. I'm curious, like why has there like not been real progress on returning POWs? And and like, why why do you think Azerbaijan has like kept this, this leverage or, or done this? I can tell you based on uh, my interviews with the foreign diplomats and also with the officials on the Armenian side, it did not have a chance to discuss this thing with the senior officials in Azerbaijan. Um, I understand that uh, the topic of the POWs is uh, is now multi-layer, I would say, you know, so it's not uh, just kind of seen from the humanitarian point of view and the need to release all the prisoners of war and also detainees uh, that were, they were detained after the ceasefire, but uh, also, you know, there is um, uh, a political um, angle to that uh, topic. Uh, I mentioned uh, this uh, uh, ongoing discussion on the mandate of the Russian peacekeepers. Uh, so apparently there are some, um, there is some interest in Baku to uh, argue that the Russian peacekeepers should not be just kind of stationed at their observation points, but they should be also responsible for, to make sure that there are no people um, with guns, uh, no matter the local forces, Nagorno-Karabakh or from Armenia inside the uh, with, uh, area of responsibility of the Russian peacekeepers. Um, in addition to that, I understand that uh, the topic, um, so look, I mean, I already mentioned humanitarian political, but I will add the third one. It's more kind of looks like a middle age uh, trait. So I will release like a free people if you do this, and uh, I will release 10 people if you do that. And um, yeah, this is really very unfortunate and extremely difficult to explain to the parents um, of those who know that their kids are now uh, in, in Azerbaijan, in prisons or in some detention centers. Um, I'm, I'm currently in Yerevan and uh, for, for two days already, parents of missing people and also for prisoners of war, they are blocking the entrance to the defense ministry. And they are also, uh, there were instances and they have been doing this since morning today. They are also blocking the main um, roads, uh, central roads inside Armenia. So they are so desperate really. And uh, 
not really kind of ready to listen to all this kind of argumentation that I have been providing so far, you know. For them, this is only about having their kids alive and back home. What you said is very important, that there are layers to the situation. There are humanitarian considerations, political, legal. Before the final successful ceasefire, the U.S., Russia, and France had tried to mediate the conflict through the OSCE Minsk Group. For people who don't know, what is this group and what role do you think it will have going forward now that it wasn't successful this last time? Well, the OSCE Minsk Group, uh, it consists of a number of countries, but they also have three co-chairing countries. Uh, the ones that you mentioned, which is U.S., uh, Russia, and, uh, and France. Um, there were the times in the past when each of these countries made a robust attempt to uh, to lead Armenia and Azerbaijan to some peace deal. And unfortunately, all of them have failed. And by the time when the war happened, I should say that the OSCE means group was there, but uh, when I discussed the things with, either with the diplomats who, who were uh, the co-chairs or some of them who worked uh, in the past, they all told me that the, it's mainly, you know, the importance and uh, the work of the OEC means group has been really kind of going down in a way, you know, so they did not really feel much power behind them. And uh, that power can only come when you have a backing coming from your capitals, you know, so, um, and uh, certainly, I mean, in this more than 25 years of conflict, uh, the, there have been so many worries already, you know, so the attention, for example, of DC certainly shifted after the 9-11, and they, they are probably more interested in some other topics rather than pushing for things, you know, in Nagorno-Karabakh. So that, there are a number of reasons why the OEC means group have been failing, and the one can write a book about this, really. But I would say that um, it's uh, um, this war, on the one hand, of course, it showed, uh, is demonstrated with failure uh, of this uh, format. But on the other hand, it, we, we are left with no other format. And um, what, what has been happening uh, since uh, the ceasefire is that Russia has been leading everything. So Russia is present on the ground. Russia is observing itself at the Russian-Turkish Observation Center. Russia is providing humanitarian support. Russia is leading the talks on, on, on with uh, transportation corridors. And Russia is potentially probably going to lead some other processes that we are hearing about. It's too much for Russia. And uh, it's also too risky in general terms uh, to leave everything in hands of one country, not just because one can think that they are bad or good, it's just the um, situation is changing, you know, and uh, oh, right now Russia can't be focused on this, but that does not mean that, like, let's say in, in two years, in three years, something happens um, and uh, probably some other area will become a priority or uh, especially in this situation when uh, we, we are seeing a deepening conflict between the West and Russia, it's just too risky really to kind of, you know, <laughs> to, to keep it this way. So I would argue that uh, there are a number of reasons why the OEC means group co-chair, they should come back and, uh, and they should uh, start working on this post-war situation. And uh, that of course uh, should be coming, I mean, with the endorsement from, from the ground, I mean, from Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, so it's, uh, um, it's, Many are framing, you know, the return of the OEC means group, just kind of saying that we would need them when the, the talks on, on status resume. In my personal view, you know, 
by the time <laughs> when that conversation starts, no one will be looking for the OEC means group anymore. We need the OEC means group exactly right now. You know, this is the very moment for them to, to step in because again, it's too much for Russia to handle, no matter whether you look like them or not. And, uh, and the second, just for uh, more uh, stability in the region, we would need more involvement of the international actors. As the OSCE Minsk group has been less active and Russia has taken a more active role, another regional power or stakeholder that has taken a more active role in the conflict is Turkey. I'm curious how successful Turkey was in inserting itself into the Nagorno-Karabakh settlement uh, and what, what future you see for Turkey in, in this conflict. Uh, Turkey was extremely successful with the war, as we could see. So Turkey provided lots of uh, weapons, some, some support to the Azerbaijani army, also mercenaries. Uh, but we also saw that Turkey uh, was mainly sidelined uh, during the very last kind of moment, you know, when Russia was breaking the ceasefire. So Russia took the um, leading role in that. Uh, Turkey um, has some officers present now at this joint Russia-Turkey observation uh, center, but uh, not more, more than that. Um, that does not mean that Turkey is not active. It's kind of, you know, it's like a pillow in the room. <laughs> yeah, so you, on the one hand, you don't really have, for example, Turkish president uh, uh, at the meeting with uh, the Armenian and Azerbaijani leaders that, that took place in Moscow in January. But you know that Turkey is present. So you know that Turkey has a certain role and a certain say in all these things. How it's going to develop, it's really very difficult for me to say. I, I, I would imagine Russia not really wanting to, uh, to give more space to Turkey. Um, and I think Armenians will definitely uh, support that stance just because they see Turkey as a, um, not just kind of a supporter to Azerbaijan, but the direct actor. Um, and in this, uh, especially, I mean, it became obvious during the recent war, uh, so I mean, having, when you have to negotiate against uh, two, I mean, with two, you, ne you negotiate with two, why would you want? <laughs> um, yeah, you would prefer to negotiate with one instead of two, is what I want to say. Sorry for the confusion. <laughs> Could you speak more generally then about, about foreign, like journalist access to Karabakh broadly or uh, access, you know, for, you know, for outside journalists has really diminished over the past several months uh, going into Karabakh. Um, I'm curious why you think this is and like what the implications are for how maybe the conflict is portrayed outside uh, in the West. I would say that the travel for, especially for journalists in Nagorno Karabakh has never been an easy task. Um, so people before the war, um, media representatives, they often got blacklisted in Azerbaijan and uh, you know, that created certain problems uh, for different people. Mm, there were also the cases when some even got arrested. So the, that thing, you know, going to Karabakh, doing work in Karabakh, it's, it's not an easy task. Um, and after the war, what, what started happening is uh, the Russian side, uh, the Russian initiative, uh, um, the Russian peacekeeping initiative, they started introducing certain rules to regulate with movement back and going back and forth between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh and also between Azerbaijani controlled territories through Nagorno-Karabakh to back to Azerbaijan territories because Azerbaijani forces are using some of the rules. And uh, what, what has been uh, happening is that some of these rules, uh, I'm afraid they are not really much 
clear, I mean, very clear, you know, to the people. And um, that creates uh, with uh, ambiguity, which is not really helpful either to the journalists uh, or to the Russian peacekeepers, in fact. So there, um, I heard some really very crazy stories, you know, when, for example, people uh, initially were denied uh, an entrance and that they came back in two hours and they, they, they easily went in. But also there were the stories when some journalists just kind of were denied from, from the beginning and they never tried <laughs> their luck, you know, luck if they, they can enter. So it's, um, on the one hand, one can understand why it's happening, right? I mean, this is a post-war region and uh, there is a need to regulate uh, some movement uh, between Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia and Azerbaijani controlled territories. But on the other, I would say that this, is still, uh, we, this will have to get addressed just because, you know, it's, it's just the beginning of the story, I would say. And uh, many people are already unhappy, you know, with what's happening. So. You've spoken about how last year's war made it all the more difficult to foster dialogue between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, ordinary people, not just high level. Are there any forums or opportunities for dialogue that are existing right now that seem promising to you? You know, it's a, it's a really very good question. And this is something that worries me a lot, because I should say that it took so, uh, so many years to construct some dialogue processes, uh, and especially engaging the younger generation or those who never had a chance to live next to each other. And uh, unfortunately, this war has um, demonstrated some really very bad behavior, I would say, by, by the people who engaged in these dialogue processes. And uh, that worries me a lot because that means that probably there will be uh, less contacts and that there we, we probably will need um, to spend much more efforts and time to either create new forums or rebuild old connections just because, you know, it was extremely difficult to, um, I mean, it's really difficult to go and sit next to someone who you used to trust and uh, you're so openly supporting um, some really brutal things that were taking place, you know, during the war. So, um, but we, I, I'm mainly talking about like with forums uh, that engage, for example, civil society or analysts or journalists and things like that, which is kind of probably more sophisticated in a way. Um, but if we are talking about like people to people contacts, indeed, uh, we haven't had any kind of direct contacts uh, between those who live in Azerbaijan and Armenia, not to mention Nagorno-Karabakh for, for several decades. And, uh, and then this is extremely difficult, you know, for people now, for example, to, um, to see Azerbaijanis <laughs> when they, for example, travel to Stepanakert or when uh, they travel in Sunik, you know, which is south, south of Armenia where Azerbaijani um, border guards are stationed. Uh, I, I, I would imagine <laughs> Azerbaijani soldiers to feel the same, <laughs> to have a similar feeling like, oh my gosh, with Armenians, you know, they're really strange. But the... Uh, uh, you know, it's, it really very much depends on politics, unfortunately. If one can imagine like living together and finding the ways how to peacefully coexist, and I'm, I'm not talking about suddenly falling in love with each other and becoming friends. <laughs> I'm, I'm more talking about like um, not killing each other at least, you know, then maybe we can potentially in some years to see some, some contacts, you know, that contacts, and I'm not talking like about like contacts like a 
my cow crossed your border and give me back my cow, you know, but more it's like uh, having some relationships with each other. But uh, it's a distant uh, future if it is to really to happen. Thank you so much. And our final question, um, what like positive uh, like outlooks do you see going into the future for Karabakh? Like, do you see any, like, are there any specific areas where you see hope and like what is maybe also like a worrying um, aspect you don't think is sufficiently covered presently? I think the the most uh, I mean the, the thing that worries me a lot is uh, the fact the fact that the situation on the ground is so much fragile. So I mean yeah, in big terms uh, we kind of can hope that uh, not time soon you know not at least kind of not uh, this year we will see a big war something like this yeah but. Uh, when, when the situation remains so much uncontrolled uh, and the people are on both sides are building trenches and this is still more about confrontational conversations um, rather than kind of seeing at least some, some space for peace. Um, I'm afraid that uh, that does not really give us much promise for even stability inside the conflict zone, not to mention peace, you know, like a reconciliation, finding solutions and all of that. Um, I really want to be wrong in, in, in my current vision, you know, and uh, I would want to come back to your podcast maybe in a couple of years telling that, hey, I was wrong, you know, it's much better than I expected. But uh, for the moment, unfortunately, uh, this is how it looks, you know, that um, it's, it has a bigger chance uh, for um, maybe a new form uh, of uh, confrontational and conflict-related, you know, relations rather than uh, for a peaceful resolution and peaceful coexistence. Well, we're grateful that you were able to have this difficult conversation with us and give us your time. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me.